All right, we're off to a great start. Our uh, first speaker this morning, is, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Bob Silicano, uh, who is professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and made some of the critical observations about uh, latency and viral dynamics, and he's going to get us up to date on the C word this morning. That's cure. Thanks, Tripp. Uh, good morning. So as, as you probably know, there's been a lot of excitement in the last two or three years about the possibility of actually uh, curing HIV infection. And uh, a lot of that has really come from the case of Timothy Brown, a courageous young man who was uh, doing very well with HIV infection, uh, undetectable viral load for several years on heart uh, when he developed uh, acute myelogenous leukemia uh, while living in Germany. And as part of the treatment for his leukemia, he received a bone marrow transplant uh, from a donor who was selected uh, to be deficient in the uh, HIV co-receptor CCR5. Uh, and at the time of the initial transplant, heart was stopped. Uh, that was five years ago, uh, and uh, uh, the virus has not come back, and uh, many laboratories, including our, our own, have looked very hard for any residual HIV in this patient and really can't find it. So he is considered uh, the first patient to be cured uh, from HIV infection. Recently, two additional cases have been reported, also involving bone marrow transplantation. Uh, and although heart hasn't been stopped in those patients, uh, the virus uh, hasn't uh, has been very difficult to detect in those people. Now, what all these cases have in common is um, uh, a, um, a conditioning regimen uh, to treat uh, the malignancy. Uh, allogeneic bone marrow transplantation, uh, some way to protect the donor cells from becoming infected with HIV. And in, in the case of Timothy Brown, it was the use of genetically deficient uh, donor cells that couldn't be infected. In the other two cases, it was simply continuing heart throughout uh, uh, the course of the transplant. Um, and then uh, all of the cases also had graft-versus-host disease, which uh, essentially eliminated uh, the recipient's immune system and all of the infected uh, uh, cells in the recipient's immune system. Now, this is clearly not a generalizable approach to curing HIV infection, but it has generated a tremendous amount of, of interest in, in, in at least the possibility that, uh, that we might be able to cure people. So what I'd like to do today is, is talk about sort of other approaches uh, that are more generalizable and where we are in terms of finding a way to do this and some of the roadblocks that we're likely to run into. And I'll begin by reviewing uh, the dynamics of our replication um, in patients on heart. So as you know, when patients start on a potent antiretroviral drug, uh, plasma virus levels undergo this very rapid uh, two-log uh, drop uh, in, um, in the level of uh, plasma HIV RNA. And the first thing they, that you have to remember is that all of the drugs we use to treat HIV infection act by blocking new cells uh, from becoming infected. They don't stop virus production by cells that are already infected. And so what this two-log drop uh, tells you is that the half-life of the cells that, that are already infected is, is very, very short. And in fact, uh, we know that most of the virus is produced by activated CD4 cells uh, that have uh, a half-life of only about one day in this productively infected uh, state. So most of the virus-producing cells actually die very, very quickly. 
Now, if the initial treatment um, is monotherapy, of course, there's a rapid rebound uh, reflecting the evolution of, of drug resistance. Uh, but the, really the big discovery in the field uh, was that if you stop, if you start um, three drugs simultaneously, uh, then uh, the level of plasma virus falls down to the limit of detection uh, and remains there in adherent patients. And this was uh, first shown in 1997, and these are the three uh, classic papers, and, and we're very fortunate to, to have uh, with us today uh, the uh, course directors, uh, Trip Ulick and, and Scott Hammer, who uh, were the authors of these uh, really profoundly, uh, of two of these uh, profoundly important papers, which ushered in the modern uh, era of antiretroviral therapy. Now, interestingly, um, uh, the third paper uh, by, by David Ho's group actually analyzed the decay rates uh, in a patient starting heart and noticed that uh, the decay was actually biphasic. There was a second slower phase uh, reflecting the turnover of another population of cells that have a, had a half-life of about two weeks. And they uh, simply extrapolated that second slower uh, decay rate down to zero residual uh, infected cells and predicted that it should be possible to eradicate the infection in two to three years. Now, that didn't happen. Um, and uh, the reason is that there's a third population of infected cells that have an even slower decay rate. And those are latently infected CD4 cells, which arise really as a, course, as a consequence of the normal physiology of CD4 cells. So most of the CD4 cells in the body are in a profoundly quiescent state, resting uh, CD4 cells, either naive cells that have not yet responded to any foreign antigen, or memory T cells that have previously participated in an immune response. And these cells will circulate throughout the lymphoid organs, essentially awaiting encounter with some foreign uh, bacterial or a viral antigen that they can recognize. And when that happens, uh, the relevant cell becomes activated and proliferates, generates uh, activated effector cells that deal with that particular uh, uh, antigen. And then at the conclusion of the immune response, most of those cells die, but some of them survive and go back to this profoundly quiescent state uh, as memory T cells, and those cells persist for uh, long periods of time, years, decades, uh, and allow you to respond to the same antigen again in the future. That's simply the fundamental paradigm that governs the adaptive immune response. So what happens in HIV infection is that the virus replicates in the activated CD4 cells, and it kills them very quickly. That's what that half-life of one day is all about. It doesn't replicate very well in resting CD4 cells. Uh, but what can happen occasionally is that one of these activated cells can become infected as it's in the process of reverting back to a resting state. And this now gives you a stably integrated form of the viral genome in a long-lived memory T cell. And what's particularly interesting is that uh, uh, when the cell makes this transition back to a resting state, HIV gene expression is turned off. And this is a picture of, of sort of the, the genetic control region of HIV. Uh, and it actually depends on uh, some host transcription factors that are turned on in activated T cells and turned off in resting T cells. So basically, HIV is turned off in resting T cells. And so you end up with a, a stably integrated but transcriptionally silent or latent form of the virus in a long-lived memory T cell. And this is a perfect recipe for viral persistence. Essentially, the virus is persisting just as information. It's just uh, 10,000 bases of DNA uh, encoding uh, the virus, but, but no active virus production is going on. And in this situation, of course, the immune system can't see it. 
uh, the drugs don't affect it, and it's a perfect way for the virus to persist. And if the cell uh, becomes activated again in the future, it can begin to produce virus. So this is just a hypothesis. How do we know these cells actually exist? Well, this is the assay that was actually used to demonstrate that these cells were present. And in this assay, you take these resting T cells, which don't produce any virus, and you put them under conditions where all of the cells become activated. And then the ones that contain latent virus will begin to produce virus particles. And you can expand those in culture. Uh, and you set this up in, a, in, a, in what's called a limiting dilution format. So lo looking for where you vary the number of input cells, looking for uh, cell dilutions where only some of the uh, wells become positive for viral growth. And, and in that case, you know that that well contained a single latently infected cell, and you can figure out the frequency of these cells. Turns out they're very rare. There's only about one in a million resting CD4 cells has this form of latent HIV. Uh, the problem is uh, that these cells don't go away. So here's now the decay rate of this population of cells in patients on heart who had an undetectable viral load. And uh, the time scale here is years. Uh, here are the uh, actual data representing uh, measurements in, in, in patients at Hopkins who were doing very well on heart, undetectable viral load. And you can see that this population of cells is extremely uh, stable. Now, the existence of this uh, stable pool of cells actually predicts that there should be another phase in this decay curve for viremia. Uh, you might imagine that every day a small number of these latently infected cells would get activated and produce virus. Uh, that virus can't go on and infect additional cells uh, because of the drugs, but in principle could be detected if you had a sensitive, sensitive enough assay for free virus in the plasma. And in uh, 1999, Roger Pomerantz actually showed that with a very, very sensitive assay, uh, essentially everybody on heart is viremic. What heart really does is, is drop the level of viremia to a new steady state uh, that's just below uh, the limit of detection of the, the clinical assay, 50 copies. Uh, and in fact, in most patients, it's about one copy uh, per mil. can be seen with very, very sensitive research uh, assays. Um, now, this originally raised concern that the drugs weren't effectively stopping viral replication, uh, but there's another explanation, and, and uh, we came to this through an analysis of this residual viremia, this trace level of free virus in the plasma of patients on heart, um, and in a series of papers which, as far as I can tell, uh, nobody has ever read, uh, we have established the characteristics of this uh, residual viremia, uh, and what, what it what, what this residual viremia represents is drug-sensitive virus. This, this virus is drug-sensitive, it's archival in character, and it's non-evolving. And all of these characteristics are consistent with the idea that this residual viremia simply re represents viruses that are being spit out of these latently infected cells when they get activated, and it doesn't go on to additional cycles of replication. Now, the alternative explanation, of course, is that the virus is continuing to replicate at a low level in patients on heart. And this has been a big controversy. Uh, and the reason I mention it is because we really, we really have to understand whether heart is stopping replication, because stopping replication is really the first step in curing the infection. And, and the way I think about it, really, there's, in order to cure uh, the infection, we've got to do three things. We've got to stop the virus from replicating. Uh, we've got to identify uh, reservoirs where non-replicating forms of the virus persist, and then we've got to get rid of those reservoirs. So uh, the first step is stopping the virus from replicating. I'll just say a little bit about uh, this controversy about whether heart really does this. So one of the things that you can do is you can look at this trace level of free virus in the plasma and compare it to viruses 
in that stable reservoir and resting CD4 cells. So here are sequences from a single patient. Uh, in white are, are, are viruses that are uh, present in this stable reservoir. And in the colored triangles are viruses, uh, free viruses present in the plasma. And you can see that they're uh, phylogenetically intermingled on this, on this tree, uh, and in some cases, in fact, identical. And this, is, this suggests that uh, this free virus is simply coming from latently infected cells that get activated. And you sequence this virus, as I mentioned, there are no new resistance mutations. It's not um, evolving, suggesting that heart is really stopping the virus from replicating. Now, what gives me sort of confidence in, 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 in saying this is some um, results from some recent studies, sort of the, the basic pharmacology of HIV drugs. So we, we evaluate HIV drugs using dose-response curves where you look at the decrease in, in viral replication as a function of increasing drug concentration. Uh, and you can characterize these curves with uh, a value called the IC50, the concentration that gives you 50% uh, inhibition of replication. Now, it turns out there's another important uh, parameter that's been largely ignored, and that describes the shape of the dose-response curve. Uh, it's called the slope parameter, and it tells you whether the curves are steep or not. Uh, it doesn't really look like this makes a whole lot of difference, especially since we use these drugs at concentrations that are well above the IC50 uh, in this pink shaded range where it looks like the curves all come together. Uh, the problem is that the way that, that pharmacologists have conventionally analyzed these dose-response curves is, in my opinion, completely uh, inappropriate. Now, if you tell an audience full of pharmacologists that they've been plotting the dose-response curve wrong for all of these years, uh, they get pretty hostile. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense to plot the inhibition of viral replication on a linear 1 to 100 scale as is conventionally done, because as you know, viruses replicate exponentially. So what you need to do is simply transform the, the y-axis on this graph to a logarithmic scale, simply the way you think about changes in viral load. You think about it uh, on a log scale going up by factors uh, of 10. And when you do that, what happens is actually very surprising. It turns out that uh, for drugs with the same IC50 but different values of this slope parameter, uh, the amount of inhibition varies dramatically. Uh, in the clinically relevant concentration range by orders and orders of magnitude, actually, such that drugs with a higher value of this slope parameter are actually much, much better. Um, and it turns out, through an analysis of current HIV drugs, that, that they actually vary in the slope parameter. The nucleoside analogs uh, have slope around 1, so like that pink curve, whereas the non-nukes and the protease inhibitors have much higher slopes, uh, for example, like the orange curve, uh, and produce much, much more inhibition at, clinically, at clinical concentrations by essentially orders and orders of magnitude. Uh, so with this kind of analysis, you can actually calculate the amount of inhibition that each drug produces at clinical concentrations. And we, we do this in, in, in terms of the number of logs by which the drug knocks down a, a viral replication. Uh, and what it looks like is this. Uh, and we estimate from, from, from other analyses that you need about a six-log reduction uh, to uh, stop all viral replication. So you can see why you need combination therapy. Many drugs on their own are not, are not strong enough to do this, but um, some of them get, get uh, uh, close, and you can also imagine that uh, appropriate combinations are going to get you way above uh, six logs. So, so my point is that actually when you analyze the pharmacology of these drugs, heart is remarkably effective and can produce six, eight, ten, even twelve logs of inhibition of viral replication. Now, there's only 10 to the 12th lymphocytes in the whole body. So 
So clearly, um, heart in an inherent patient has the sort of, sort of the power to stop ongoing replication. Now, the real critical test, I think, came from studies of, of intensification of heart. And here the idea was to add a fourth drug and see whether the level of residual viremia went down any further, which you might expect that it would if residual viremia reflect ongoing cycles of replication. Um, and uh, so, so this has been done in a num number of studies. This is the first one. Uh, here's the levels of viremia in patients on heart prior to intensification, uh, between 1 and 50 copies. Uh, uh, here's during intensification and after. And you can see that intensification had absolutely no effect on residual viremia. This has been done with several different uh, uh, intensification drugs, and more recently with raltegavir in many studies. And all of these studies show the same thing. Intensification has no effect on residual viremia. Essentially, heart has reached its theoretical limit. We're never going to reduce viremia any further, and that's because this residual viremia is coming from cells that were infected prior to the initiation of therapy, long-lived, uh, latently infected cells uh, uh, that are um, simply releasing virus that is not going through additional cycles. Okay, so uh, let's move on now to the second, uh, second step uh, in, in finding cure, and that's identifying all of the reservoirs where non-replicating forms of the virus can persist. And I've already described one, this reservoir in resting CD4 cells. Um, uh, are there others? Well, um, when we start to think about this, I think we have to remember that um, eradication uh, studies, uh, strategies are probably going to be carried out in patients who've been on heart for many years. So um, uh, reservoirs in which the virus is persisting that, that have a very short half-life are probably not uh, relevant. Uh, for example, the, the cells responsible for the first and second phase of, of decay um, uh, with half-lives on the order of days are probably not relevant. And, and so we'd like to sort of propose that reservoirs really be defined as infected cell populations that allow persistence of the virus on a time scale of years in patients on an optimal heart regimen. To date, there's only one reservoir that sort of meets that criteria, and that's the, this uh, pool of latently infected resting CD4 cells. But there is evidence that there may be another reservoir, and a lot of this, again, comes from the analysis of this residual viremia. So I showed you this phylogenetic tree from a single patient uh, with sequences of the free virus and the plasma being the colored triangles, but this is only part of the tree. So here's the rest of the tree. And what's interesting in, in this patient and in about half of the patients that we've studied is that uh, many of the viruses in the plasma are, represent a single clones, uh, the same exact sequence identified over and over again. And we can't find that sequence in resting CD4 cells. It seems to be coming from some other cell type that's not in the blood, and we don't know what that cell is. But this is genetic evidence that there exists at least one other major reservoir for the virus that has not yet been identified. So I'd like to move on to uh, how do we eliminate uh, uh, these reservoirs. Uh, the fundamental approach is simply to uh, reverse latency. And of course, as I mentioned, latency associated with the resting state of CD4 cells. So the original approach was simply to activate T cells, uh, and that would uh, make the latent virus come out. Uh, this would be done in patients on heart, so the virus didn't spread. Uh, and then uh, the hope was that these cells would die very quickly. And as I mentioned, activated CD4 cells that are infected have a very short uh, half-life. And if they, they didn't die right away, perhaps they could be cleared uh, by the immune system. 
Now, this was tried uh, with activating agents like anti-CD3 and interleukin-2, uh, but the problem is that uh, inducing global T-cell activation uh, creates tremendous toxicity. So uh, the field has really been interested in finding ways to reverse latency that don't cause, uh, don't require T-cell uh, activation. Uh, and it really wasn't all that clear that, that we could do this, that we could find agents uh, uh, that do this, and, and, and the reason has to do sort of with the fundamental nature of HIV latency, which is really very different from uh, other forms of viral latency, uh, for example, <clears throat> as, as you see with herpes viruses. And, and the reason is that HIV replicates uh, continuously at a high level in untreated patients. So it doesn't need to establish state of latency in order to persist. It persists actually by rapid evolution, by avoiding the immune response through rapid evolution. Uh, and latency is really essentially sort of an accidental consequence of the fact that it infects, the virus infects activated T cells, which occasionally revert back to this resting state, which is non-permissive uh, for uh, viral rep replication. And as, as a result of that, there's actually many molecular mechanisms for latency, all of which reflect the sort of the differences uh, in the transcriptional environment in an activated cell and a resting cell. And these have been analyzed in many laboratories. Uh, the mechanisms include uh, 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 transcription factors that are not available in resting T cells, modifications to the DNA and the histones that affect uh, transcription. And these have suggested potential approaches for reversing latency. But the point I want to make is that there's many mechanisms of latency. And it wasn't all that clear that any single drug would be able to reverse uh, latency. Now, how do we even find such a drug? We can't uh, use cells from patients to screen for drugs that would reverse latency because, as I mentioned, the frequency is only one in a million. Uh, so experimentally, it's very, very difficult to do this. The way the drug companies have, have, have done this is to use transformed cell lines, HeLa cells or 293 cells, which are epithelial cells that are convenient to work with in the laboratory. Um, we think it's probably better to use T cells uh, 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 and primary T cells for the screening, uh, and, and primary T cells uh, models have been developed, but they're uh, harder to use, and so sort of what you gain in in vivo relevance, you lose in screening efficiency. These two approaches have uh, essentially given different uh, types of hits. Uh, the uh, screening approach in, in epithelial cells has predominantly generated a class of drugs uh, known as histone deacetylase inhibitors that affect the histone modifications of DNA that control gene expression in, in many systems. And some of these are actually cancer drugs like Varinostat or Saha, which has been tested in a recent clinical trial uh, for reversing uh, HIV latency. Um, how do we find a more realistic way to, to look for these drugs? Uh, this is a primary cell model that was developed in our lab, and, and, and many other related uh, models have been developed in other groups. Essentially, you take T cells from a normal donor, and uh, do a couple of manipulations that allow these cells to survive in vitro for long periods of time, and then uh, infect the cells with a, with a genetically engineered virus that carries green fluorescent protein. So essentially, the infected cells turn green. Uh, and then you culture the cells so that they uh, go back to a resting state and turn off HIV gene expression. Uh, and now you have a population of latently infected cells. You can add uh, different drugs and see what will turn on... Um, uh, virus gene uh, expression. And one of the encouraging things is that with this type of system, it's actually been remarkably easy um, to find hits, to find compounds that, that do turn on latent HIV. And these are some of the compounds that have been identified, interestingly, 
One of them was a drug you're probably familiar with, disulfiram, or antabuse, uh, which has been used to treat alcoholism for many years. Um, and because this drug is relatively safe in patients who, who abstain from alcohol, a clinical trial was carried out looking for uh, increases in, uh, transient increases in HIV RNA um, in patients on heart uh, who received disulfiram for two weeks. A few uh, patients had an increase. Uh, and then also looking for a long-term decrease in the size of the latent reservoir, and that did not happen. Um, and so this um, led us to sort of question the, the basic principle upon which these eradication uh, studies are based, and that is the idea that if you reverse latency, the cells are going to die. Now, I think that's clearly uh, true if, in the case of agents that activate T cells, but what about uh, agents like disulfiram or abirinostat, uh, Saha, uh, that reverse latency without causing T cell activation, are the cells going to die or will they be killed by the immune system? Uh, those uh, things weren't really clear. Um, and in our analysis, what happens is that uh, when you reverse latency with agents that cause T cell activation, the cells do die. But if you do it with agents like Varinostat, uh, the cells actually don't die. Uh, they just sit there and continue to uh, uh, produce a virus. So this is a real uh, problem. Will they be cleared by the immune system? Uh, this is an assay in which we look at killing of these latently infected cells that have been reactivated uh, by CD8-positive T cells. If you do this with cells from a normal donor where there's no HIV-specific uh, cytolytic T cells, then there's no killing. If you do this with cells from an elite suppressor, one of these unique patients who control HIV without medication, they have very strong cytolytic T cell responses, and as shown in red, uh, uh, they can clear these latently infected cells. But what about most patients on heart? It turns out um, that in many patients on heart, the cytolytic T cell response is, is non-functional, and they don't clear these latently infected uh, T cells uh, very well in vitro, in in vitro uh, studies. And this suggests that uh, these reactivation strategies are going to have to be combi combined with some type of therapeutic vaccination. Um, and we're going to hear about that from Dr. Rowland in, in the next talk. Uh, but this vaccination would then enhance the HIV-specific immune response so that these latently infected cells could be cleared. So we think heart largely stops viral replication, um, but th there is this latent reservoir. Uh, small molecules that reverse latency can be uh, identified, uh, but the problem is that uh, the cells uh, may not die if you simply reverse latency, and we may need to find ways to kill them. Um, so. What I'd like to turn to next is sort of some practical issues about how we're actually going to study this in patients in these eradication studies that we're likely going to be seeing a lot of in the next couple of years. Um, this is, again, the original assay that was used to detect this latent reservoir. This assay is very difficult and complicated uh, and is only done in a couple of laboratories. And there is no clinical measure that we can use to assess the size of the latent reservoir. So how are we going to know whether these strategies are actually doing uh, any good. Um, this is a, a study uh, designed to, to, to evaluate different approaches to measuring the latent reservoir uh, and compare the results of different assays to this virus culture assay. Now, here's uh, the virus culture assay done on a group of well-characterized patients. And as I mentioned, the frequencies of latently infected cells are around uh, one in a million. Um, it would be much more convenient if we could use a PCR assay, uh, which uh, detects viral RNA or viral DNA. And of course, as you know, the viral load uh, assay is a PCR-based uh, assay. Um, PCR-based assays for latently infected cells give much higher frequencies of 
uh, infected cells, about a hundredfold higher than the virus uh, culture assay. And uh, there is unfortunately absolutely no correlation between the two assays. So although it would be very convenient to use PCR, um, it's not giving us the kind of information uh, that we need. Um, and the reason is that there is a, <clears throat> um, a very large and, and sort of uh, from patient to patient highly variable uh, difference in the ratios between the uh, number of infected cells detected by PCR versus virus culture. In some cases, it's 3,000 to 1. PCR detects 3,000-fold more cells than the virus culture uh, assay. And this same problem appears with various other uh, culture approach, uh, PCR approaches to detecting latently infected cells. Um, the PCR approaches all give uh, infected cell frequencies that are two to three orders of magnitude higher than we get with this virus culture assay. Now, another approach would be to measure residual viremia with very sensitive uh, assays for plasma virus. So the problem there is that um, in many patients on heart, the level of residual viremia is below one copy per mil, so it's below the level that can be detected even by these very sensitive uh, uh, research assays already, so that we couldn't really use this to follow eradication. So uh, measures of persistent infection in CD4 cells uh, uh, show a lot of variation about over a two-log range. There's actually not much difference between patients who start heart early versus late. Um, PCR assays give about two logs higher uh, infected cell frequencies and correlate poorly with the viral outgrowth assay. And residual viremia, which would be a great way to measure uh, these reservoirs, um, the problem there is that the dynamic range is limited. So we actually don't have a good way to follow eradication. Um, now, what's the explanation for this discrepancy between PCR-based assays and the virus culture assays? Uh, what this suggests is that, and here's again the, the original virus culture assay, what this suggests is that there are many proviruses that don't get stimulated to uh, turn on in this virus culture assay, and we call these non-induced uh, proviruses. Um, and they're detected by PCR, but they, for some reason, they don't give rise to replication-competent virus in a single round of in vitro stimulation. Um, so we've analyzed these uh, viruses at the genetic level by, by essentially cloning and sequencing them, and um, I'm going to show you what they actually look like. So about 25% of these non-induced proviruses contain uh, a large number of mutations that are introduced by a very interesting host protein called ApoBec3G, which is, has, has the, the function essentially of protecting cells against retroviral infection by inducing a lethal level of hypermutation. Another, uh, about 50%, contain large um, internal deletions. And so these viruses would be uh, defective and clearly could not uh, produce replication-competent virus under any uh, circumstances, although they're still detected by PCR. Uh, just a couple of uh, illustrations of what these uh, sort of defective viruses actually look like. So in the case of hypermutation, what happens is that wherever you have a tryptophan codon in a viral protein, uh, that gets mutated to a stop codon so that uh, production of viral protein stops. And, and these hypermutated viruses basically can't make any viral proteins. Um, here's an example of a deletion that encompasses uh, a part of uh, the uh, gag open reading frame, and this, would, uh, this virus would not be able to replicate. 
And here's a map of many viruses that contain very large internal deletions covering most of the three prime end of the viral genome. Uh, none of these viruses would be able to replicate, but they're all, they're all detectable by PCR. So I think a big problem uh, with uh, eradication um, studies in the future is that even if we find something that works, that leads to the elimination of lately infected cells, it's probably not going to eliminate these defective viruses, which would still be detected by PCR. So we may be in a situation where um, uh, the uh, assay, that the virus culture assay, which is, of course, very difficult uh, to do, uh, would actually show a clearance of this latent reservoir, but uh, much simpler PCR-based assays are actually not going to change at all uh, because uh, they're detecting these defective viruses, which are not responding to the eradication strategy. So we have to develop a better way to monitor eradication uh, strategies. Uh, so um, many of these non-induced proviruses are defective as a result of this interesting host protein, Apobec3G. Um, these are unlikely to be affected by uh, eradication strategies. Um, and this virus culture assay, which is really the only uh, sort of reliable way to, to, to measure this reservoir, um, is what we're going to have to rely on until we can figure out a better way to follow eradication. So that's a problem. Uh, but even more uh, disturbing um, is uh, uh, sh uh, the fact that although most of these proviruses that are present in resting uh, CD4 cells are defective, um, about uh, 16 to 17 percent, actually ranging in different patients from all the way from 6 to 36 percent of these uh, non-induced proviruses actually appear to be genetically intact. They have no defects that we can detect at the primary sequence level. Uh, and these viruses could potentially replicate. So, so can they replicate? Uh, in order to evaluate this, we've essentially reconstructed these viruses through a series of genetic manipulations and asked whether they actually grow uh, in vitro. Uh, so here's a growth curve for one of these non-induced proviruses, and it grows basically just as well as the standard reference strain of HIV uh, NL4-3. Uh, so this suggests that many of these non-induced proviruses actually can replicate, uh, and we've analyzed their uh, promoters, their genetic control regions. They appear to be fine. Uh, We've looked at DNA methylation, which is a mechanism for suppression of our viral gene expression that's been uh, claimed, at least in some in vitro studies, to be responsible for latency. We can't find methylation of these uh, proviruses. And we've looked, uh, finally, at uh, where these viruses actually integrate into the host uh, cell genome. And, and what we've seen is that uh, these viruses behave just like uh, uh, HIV proviruses um, originally studied in, in, in many systems. They integrate right in the middle of active cellular genes so that they should uh, be in a, in a sort of chromatin environment where uh, expression of viral genes uh, is possible. And sort of the result of all is, of this is that uh, although many of the proviruses are defective, a substantial number actually appear to be intact uh, and could potentially cause problems in the patient. So. Um, uh, and we've shown that cloned versions of some of these viruses actually do replicate very well. They have functional uh, genetic control regions, um, and they're located in, they're integrated in regions that would allow uh, expression. And um, our, our bottom line is that uh, the number of clinically uh, relevant uh, latently infected cells that contain these viruses that can replicate 
may actually be about nine or tenfold higher than we originally thought. Um, and we have to figure out whether, uh, whether or not we need to worry about these viruses that, don't, that are not detected in the virus culture assay but appear to be replication uh, competent. So let me just conclude uh, in terms of these three steps. Um, uh, I think in terms of um, stopping the virus from replicating, we're there. Uh, other reservoirs, this is really sort of the elephant in, in the room. There's genetic evidence, but, but no proof uh, for additional reservoirs. Uh, and in terms of finding ways to eliminate these reservoirs, there's been substantial progress, but we need to work on finding agents that reverse latency, getting those cells to die once we do reverse latency, and, and how are we even going to measure this in, in, in clinical trials? And what about all of these viruses uh, that appear to be intact that we don't detect in, in this virus uh, culture uh, assay? So let me just thank the people in my group who did this work. Um, the original work on the stability of the latent reservoir was done by my wife Janet along with Deanna Finzi, a graduate student in the lab at the time. Uh, the primary cell model was developed by Andrew Yang. Uh, disulfiram studies were done by Safay Singh um, and Adam Spivak. Um, uh, the work on um, these non-induced proviruses was done by Liang Shen and Yachi Ho, and I'd like to thank these uh, collaborators um, and uh, sources of funding. And I'll stop there and um, um, take any questions now or questions on. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not sure I went over because I think they only gave me 30 minutes. But yeah, great. Uh, thanks, Bob. That was fantastic, actually. So we have two ways that you can ask questions. We have mics in the middle of the room, or you have question cards. Um, and if you have a question on the card, just raise your hand and someone will collect it. Uh, Dr. Hammer at the mic. A couple of quick questions. One is uh, the central nervous system. Are there uh, latent reservoirs there? Obviously, it's a reservoir, but have you been able to look at either mi microglia or other cells of the CNS, the occasional lymphocyte in the non-inflamed brain, and do we have uh, inducible proviruses in the brain? Yeah, I think that's a critical question. It's obviously much more difficult to study. Uh, really, the best studies are kind of in the SIV system where you can actually look um, in the brain. But uh, those studies are very problematic in the sense that, that to really mimic the situation of patients on heart, you need to have these monkeys on a suppressive antiretroviral therapy for a matter of years. That's actually never been done. Uh, so those studies are very short-term. And um, clearly, there are virus... Uh, uh, infection in the central nervous system, uh, microglial cells, I think, are kind of the most likely candidate for a cell that could harbor the virus for a long period of time. But essentially, uh, the, the critical studies have not yet been done demonstrating a persistence on a time scale of years in, in patient in, in the setting of a suppressive heart regimen. Okay, I'll defer to the audience questions. Okay, great. Um, question from the audience. Uh, Bob, is there any correlation between CD4 cell count recovery on a heart regimen and level of residual viremia? Um, not that I know of. Um, I think CD4 cell uh, recovery, uh, you know, to a large extent depends on, on the degree of damage to the, sort of the lymphoid uh, microenvironments. Um, uh, that has occurred uh, during the course of, of untreated HIV infection. Uh, the level of residual viremia, 
um, varies within, within a fairly narrow range and, and, and is possibly higher in, in, in patients who've uh, been affected a long, infected for a long time before starting heart. But um, it's, it's not really clear because residual viremia is so difficult to measure. In, in many patients, it's actually below the limit of detection, so we can't actually tell what the level is. Could you comment um, on the recent controversy about the Berlin patient, um, Timothy Brown, that uh, apparently some labs were able to isolate what looked like virus? Yeah, so um, Timothy Brown's been, been very generous in providing uh, uh, all kinds of samples to scientists who are uh, uh, investing the, investigating the question of whether or not he is really cured. And what's basically happened is that samples have been sent to many laboratories, including our own. People have used the most sensitive assays, trying to look for any trace of virus. The culture assay, which is really the definitive assay, has been negative in, in every case. A PCR, uh, which is extremely sensitive and can detect a single molecule, has rarely been, has, has occasionally been positive in a couple of samples, but uh, the definitive thing would be to sequence that virus and show that it's actually virus coming from Timothy Brown and not some uh, contaminant, which is extremely easy to get in, in these types of experiments. And so that hasn't been done. There's been no real confirmed evidence for persistent HIV in this patient. There have been occasional positive uh, um, assays, which may be false positives, and, and that's completely understandable because you're sort of pushing this technique to, to the very limit. But there's no real confirmed evidence for persistent HIV in this patient. Scott, did you have another question? Uh, I do. Uh, the, epi the epigenetic mechanisms that maintain latency of HIV, uh, presumably the cells use those, those mechanisms to silence other genes. Uh, and so how selective can we be, even if we have effective means of uh, bringing one or two or three different drugs to uh, deacetylate or inhibit right. or whatever, what are we going to be doing well, to, the, to the rest of the, the silenced genes that use the similar mechanisms? Right. So, so you raise a great point. So uh, things like DNA methylation and, and, and modification of histones control expression essentially of all 30,000 of, of, of the, the host genes. So. So manipulations that, that affect those mechanisms are in no way HIV-specific and are likely to have uh, large numbers of, of other effects. And in fact, the, the histone deacetylase inhibitors have substantial toxicity. They're actually used as cancer chemotherapy uh, agents. Uh, so none of the approaches that have been taken so far are really um, HIV-specific. It's only through things like targeting the HIV TAT protein that we might be able to get a sort of specific way to turn on HIV gene expression without affecting uh, expression of host genes. And I think that's a real problem. And is there any hope for single-cell immunologic assays that will get sensitive enough to be able to permeabilize and detect proviral sequences, or is that too far out? Uh, well, I mean, there are, there are attempts now to, to, to detect the HIV gag protein in cells at a sort of single cell level by, by flow cytometry. Um, but the assumption there is that, um, that, that these cells would be expressing viral genes. And, and our current understanding of latency is, in fact, that there's really very little viral gene expression. So um, the, the, the cells would not be detectable by any approach that... that looks for viral protein expression, unless you did something to, to activate the cell and turn on virus gene expression. Thank you. 
some great questions from the audience. So you focused on blood pretty much in your presentation. Scott asked you about CNS. A question from the audience, what about the genital tract as a uh, reservoir? Yeah, so um, I think it's very important to look at, at other anatomical sites. Um, they're actually, in, in terms of um, uh, the site where, where the highest level of viral replication occurs actually is in, in, in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, one of the slides I showed actually had uh, an analysis of, of HIV DNA levels in uh, CD4 cells from uh, rectal biopsies. And in fact, in, in, in those cells, the level of HIV DNA is about an order of magnitude higher than, than you see in the blood. Uh, but whether that virus is replication competent, nobody has yet established. And whether, in fact, the virus is latent in, in those sites, which are, tend to be sites where, where there's lots of activated T cells, is not yet uh, uh, clear. So those are uh, critical questions. I think we need to really evaluate uh, these reservoirs in, in you know, different anatomical sites. A uh, question that's been asked over the years, and here it is again, what about treating very early in acute infection? Could we limit the size of the reservoir by doing that? Well, um, in, in our analysis, of, in, in the studies I showed actually, um, uh, a third of the patients were treated during acute infection. Uh, so in some cases, uh, when, when, the, when the date of infection was known within, treated, let's say, within a month of, of infection. Um, in those patients, the level of these reservoirs by a variety of different measures is only slightly lower than in patients who start treatment during chronic infection. Um, and in fact, if you treat patients during symptomatic primary infection, uh, when the patients are, have not yet seroconverted but have very le high levels of HIV RNA, uh, then it's already too late. The reservoir is established. Uh, it might be slightly uh, lower than in patients who start during chronic infection, but it's only if you sort of treat right after exposure and then you're really sort of talking about a sort of a post-exposure prophylaxis situation where you actually prevent the initial um, uh, explosive expansion of the virus that you could limit um, the establishment of these reservoirs. And I'll ask the last question myself. The, uh, do you think your data reassure us clinically when we see these, we're, we're all getting increased sensitivity with the viral load assays that our hospitals and uh, yeah. clinical labs are using. So the threshold continues to be lower. They now report detectable versus not detectable and then yeah. give us numbers. Um, is this low-level viremia something that we really don't have to worry about clinically? Well, I mean, we, we've done a lot of work on this, including an analysis of blips where the, the viral load went above uh, 50 transiently and then went right back down. And in all of our sequence analysis, there are no new resistance mutations in, in blips, let's say, that are less than 200 copies. Um, the, the analysis of, of viral evolution suggests that this virus is archival in character. It's not changing. It really looks like it's just coming out of these reservoirs. And so I think the biology is really that, that everybody on heart should be expected to have some level of viremia that would be detected with an, you know, sort of an, a perfectly sensitive uh, of assay. So, so heart really shouldn't be... Uh, producing a situation where there's no virus in the blood because there still are cells that were infected before the treatment was started that can get activated and spit out virus. And I think that's what most of this residual viremia is 
represents. And so I think we have to be very careful about you know, what we do when we see this uh, C-detectable viremia that's at a very low level. Um, we don't really even understand what it is. As I mentioned, in some patients, it's this unusual oligoclonal uh, virus, and we don't even know where it's coming from. But in every case, it's, it's archival and non-evolving. Um, and I think that's what gives us comfort. Okay, great. Uh, we're off to a great start. I'll turn the podium over to Dr. Hammer. Thank you.